Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. All right. Well, we're going to see if we make it through class tonight. One way or the other. See how things go. Uh, I have uh, up here a magazine that I'd like to recommend to y'all get. It's called Answers, and I'm not hawking the, ma- the, the, the that you subscribe to the journal, but this is a, I think it's a double, like a double thick issue. It's put out by Answers in Genesis, and their website is AnswersInGenesis.org. How creative that they would have the same name for their website as their ministry, Answers in Genesis. And in this issue, which is volume two, number two, you might want to write that down. You can go to their website. If you go to their bookstore, it's going to pop up right on their front page where you can just order this issue. But this issue is uh, focused around the theme of the Noahic flood, and it has some uh, fabulous artwork in here and some, uh, I don't know if you can see this, but on the front here it has a design of what the ark would have, uh, what this one artist's conception is based on the fact that he's a nautical engineer and has been studying uh, the ark for quite some time, has various articles in here, one on sauropods, uh, which are we grew up calling, if you're older, called them brontosauruses, sauropods, uh, flood legends uh, depicting the ark, different uh, ways the ark's been depicted down through the uh, centuries, uh, thinking outside the box. Uh, then various other articles on caring for the animals on the ark, how that could take place if you've got 20,000 animals to take care of in an enclosed space with eight adults. What are the dynamics involved? Um, Another article, The Universality of the Genesis Flood. Uh, another article on the effect a worldwide ca- catastrophe of that nature would have uh, geologically in terms of the tectonic plates. And then the imp- what would happen meteorologically in terms of se- uh, setting things up for the ice ages because you had a massive shift that occurred meteorologically so that you would have uh, rapid periods of global warming and global cooling immediately after the flood, which would bring on on the various ice ages. So there's a number of other articles, but it is a uh, tremendous um, tremendous journal. And they have lots of stuff in here for kids also, and they have uh, some you know fold-out things. I'm just trying to figure out how to get all this scanned into my computer. So uh, that would be great to get a couple of those just to stick in prep school to have for resources. Well, before we get started, let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're ready to study God's Word, just to make sure that uh, if we have any unconfessed sin, that we uh, take that before God's throne of grace, make sure we're in fellowship and ready to study the Word. Let's pray. Father, it's such a privilege to be able to have in our hands our very own copy of your word. 
that down through the ages so many believers have had have not had access to your word, and yet here we have it in our uh, very own language, and we have a, a completed canon. We have so many ways in which we can uh, access your word through so many different technological tools that there's just no excuse for uh, not learning everything that you have for us in your word. We thank you that you have revealed these things to us, and as Paul said to Timothy, that all Scripture has been breathed out by you and therefore is profitable in one way or another in our lives. As we study these things this evening, we pray that you'd help us to understand them and that our strength, our faith would be strengthened, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Genesis 49, and we'll uh, see how far we make it before I, I run up the white flag. Genesis 49 is... Uh, Jacob's final blessing and prophecy for his 12 sons. We've studied the first part of it. We've gone through Reuben. Okay. Um, Reuben, Levi, and Simeon we've covered already. And last time we got started with Judah. Judah and the prophecy with Judah. He's going to be the leader of the 12. Now, what's interesting is every now and then, that's how Bible classes, even though we teach different, I teach different books, different subjects, they tend to uh, sort of gel because on sun, this next Sunday morning, we're in the section in Revelation 5.5 5, where we see the title Lion of the Tribe of Judah applied to the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lamb before the throne who's qualified to open the scroll with the seven seals. And that title, the Lion of the Tribe of Judah, comes right out of this prophecy in Genesis chapter 49. So the two things that we're studying come uh, right together. Uh, last time we sort of began this, uh, Judah, Jacob says, You are he whom your brother shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, indicating his uh, conquest. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. The other, this is a very long prophecy. The other long one is the one related to Joseph near the end of the chapter. There are four distinct prophecies embedded here. The first is that Judah will be the uh, leader of the twelve, the second is that uh, he will uh, be indomitable and be a conqueror. The third is that a eternal eternal ruler will come from him, Shiloh, and the fourth is that there will be uh, a judgment coming that is associated with the coming of Shiloh. So we'll look at these as we work through the text. First of all, Judah, you are he. Whom your brothers shall praise. This is a play on the name Judah or Yada, which is the Hebrew for praise. When it's put into 
other forms. It comes out, sometimes the Y at the beginning is exchange for T, and that word toda is a word that is used for thanksgiving or praise psalms, toda psalms, and the root is yada, meaning to praise God. We studied this a little bit a while back when we looked at confession because that word is used. Uh, the root meaning is to declare something, and in most cases it has its usage, it's related to declaring the praise or thanksgiving of God, but in a few passages it has to do with declaring one's sins or confessing uh, one's sins. His, he was named uh, as one uh, related to praise because of the circumstances of his birth. He was the uh, fourth son to Jacob and Leah, and when she conceived and bore the son, she said, Now I will praise Yahweh. Therefore she called his name Judah, and then she stopped bearing. She was uh, praising God because uh, she was always less than favored by, by Jacob, who apparently gave all of his attention or most of his attention to Rachel. But So she, she was grateful because she was the one who bore the first four sons and sort of lorded it over uh, Rachel, who was who was barren? The, the family dynamics here, just the inner interfamily. Uh, I don't know what the word would be. Um, the the with with two wives and two concubines, the politics and the, the let's say the bedroom politics must have been something to uh, stretch even the most avid fan of a soap opera's mind. But. Um, so she gives birth to Judah, and at first he doesn't seem like he's going to be much of a leader, but by Genesis 44, we saw that after his episode with his daughter-in-law Tamar, that he begins to take on leadership among the brothers. Tribally, the tribe of Judah is the leader. Numbers 10:14, when God gives the order of march for the uh, Israelites, as they go through the wilderness, the order in which they would camp and then the order in which they would move out, the tribe of Judah would, was to be in the lead. When they went to uh, Canaan, the largest portion of the land was for Judah. This is a better map than I had uh, last week, and you can see over here that this green section down here in the southern part of Israel is the area given to Judah. There's a blue section in the middle there for Simeon. Actually, Simeon was was uh, sort of interspersed in the area and uh, eventually, as we studied last week, became absorbed and assimilated into Judah and just tended to lose uh, their identity. So Judah had the largest allotment of land in Canaan. In Numbers 1 and in Numbers 26, in the two different uh, uh, censuses taken, Judah had the largest population. In the phrase, when it talks about his brothers, it talks about the fact that uh, your brothers shall praise you. This is um, emphasized at, through the Davidic covenant because of God's blessing on David, who was uh, one of Judah's descendants, the whole nation would be blessed. 
We see that his, the phrase, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, indicates the conquest. And we might just leave that map up here. Hold your place here in Genesis 49 and turn over to the first chapter of Judges. The first chapter of Judges gives us a summary of the uh, conquest as each tribe begins to uh, take control of their particular inheritance. They initially went in, all 12 tribes together, and they hit the major strongholds of Jericho, Ai. They hit major strongholds in the south and north, basically hit the uh, primary places where there was the greatest resistance. And then they had to go into a mopping up operation where each tribe would go in and have to take complete control of the land that was given to them. And right away we see that Judah is the first mentioned in Judges chapter 1, verse 2, the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I've delivered the land into his hands. So Judah said to, notice, Simeon, his brother. Now, right away, we learn that these two are closely connected because their allotment, the Simeon's allotment, inheritance is within that of, of Judah. So that's why Judah and Simeon uh, ally themselves together in Judges chapter 1 to go up against the Canaanites. Verse 4, Judah went up. The Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. They killed 10,000 men at uh, Bezek. Bezek is somewhere within the territory. We're not sure where it's located. They found Adonai Bezek in Bezek. Now, that sounds redundant in English, but Adonai is the Hebrew word for Lord. Bezek is the name of the town. And so the uh, dynastic name or the title of the leader was Adonai Bezek. It's a name that's not uh, too different from Melchizedek. This was a dynastic title, meaning king of righteousness. Adonai Bezek would be the lord of Bezek. There was also an Adonai Zedek, uh, like Melchizedek also mentioned in the scriptures. And this guy was quite the uh, warrior and tyrant. But they defeated him, and he fled. And when they ca- caught him in verse 6, I always thought this was one of those interesting tales. Most people miss the point here. Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued him and caught him, and they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. I mean, why did they cut off his thumbs and his big toes? This is a, one of the early disarmament policies in mi- the military. You know, instead of taking handguns away from everybody, you just, you know, cut off their trigger finger. That's the idea here. You cut off his thumbs and his big toes, and he can't hold a sword, and he can't throw a spear, and he, without having any big toes, he can't be balanced, he can't run or, or wrestle or engage in hand-to-hand combat. So it was just a, an early disarmament policy that had been followed by the pagans. Now, what was the mandate of God in holy war? Was, did God tell him to, to disarm the Canaanites? No, God told him to kill the Canaanites, kill every man, woman, child, all their cattle, all their sheep, everything. So right away we see that Judah and Simeon began to compromise the standard of God. God said to kill everybody, and they adopt pagan practices of maiming and disarmament, and it's a form of cruelty. And Adonai Bezek reveals this in his response. He said 70 Seventy kings 
with their thumbs and big toes cut off, used to gather scraps under my table. As he had conquered these other, these other city-states, he had forced their leaders, he'd cut their thumbs and toes off, and so they had to grovel around in his uh, dining area to, to get scraps and to uh, feed off the leftovers from his table. So we see right away that Judah begins to compromise the word and act, act more. The tribe begins to act more and more like the pagans. Verse 8 of Judges 1, the children of Judah fought against Jerusalem and took it. So here we're told that they, and they, they were the first to conquer Jerusalem, but it wasn't really within their territory. If we look at the map here, Jerusalem is located uh, right there. How do you like that pink? Color. Does that help any? I'm trying to find a good color that you can see through, but that's not the best. Anyway, Jerusalem is right there on the border with uh, uh, Judah and Benjamin. And even though the, the Judahites conquered Jerusalem, it was the responsibility of Benjamin to hold it and to occupy it, and they failed. And the uh, Jebusites came back and regained control, and it wasn't until the time of David that Jerusalem is finally uh, conquered and taken under the control control of the Jews. And then we read in verse 9, Afterward the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who dwelt in the mountains in the Negev, and that's down here to the south where Benjamin is located in that particular area, in the Negev and in the lowland, and they went against the Canaanites in Hebron. Hebron, of course, today is uh, an area that is a still a place of violence. That's where uh, the uh, Palestinian Authority is in control. Uh, there's just a small, I think, native Jewish segment there. But this is Hebron. It's very famous because this was taken by Caleb. And Caleb received this as his, um, as his reward uh, down in, uh, at, at Hebron. We'll read on in verse 10, Judah went against Canaanites dwelt in Hebron, which is formerly known as Kirith Arba, and they killed these three giants, their Sheshai, Achimon, and Talmai. And from there they went against the inhabitants of Debir, which was previously known as Kirith Sefer. And Caleb said, whoever attacks Kirith Sefer, he's, this guy's such a great warrior. And he promises anybody who's got the courage to conquer, uh, Debir, I will give him my daughter Oxa as a wife. So Othniel, who turns out to be the first judge later on, uh, takes him up on that and goes and conquers the Canaanites. And so we see that they are both great men of faith, and they are in the tribe of Judah. And then you can go on and read about the uh, rest of the things that happen. Uh, Judah and Simeon fight together in chapter 17, attack, attack the uh, Canaanites in uh, Zephath and destroy it, and they take the uh, area along the, uh, along the Mediterranean. And we learn that the Lord, verse 19 in conclusion, the Lord was with Judah. They drove out the mountaineers, that is those in the highlands, the mountains of Judah, but they couldn't drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. See, the, the Jews don't have the best technology yet, so they, and rather than trusting God, now they began to get defeated. God would have given them the victory, but they've compromised already, and this is what really what happens in the remainder of the chapter. You see that eventually 
you get down to the discussion about Dan, the tribe of Dan, and that we'll talk about Dan probably next next week when we get there. And Dan goes to the north, and Dan just fails. And so there's this, in chapter 1 of Judges, there's this just progressive compromise that takes place among the Jews. So we read also that in terms of his conquest, Second Samuel 22.41 uh, quotes this particular passage in terms of their uh, military prowess. Uh, Genesis 49.9, we read, uh, something different about Judah. He's a lion's whelp. A lion is a majestic animal. A lion is powerful. He's fast. A lion is uh, very strong. And so in Genesis 49:10, we see this, 9 and 10, we see this uh, shift to this uh, metaphor of a lion, emphasizing power, strength, leadership, and the idea that no one in that last Phrase and as a lion, who shall rouse him? In other words, who is there that can be as powerful as Judah? Who is it that can uh, defeat him? And it's a rhetorical question that none is more uh, powerful. None of the tribes are more powerful than Judah. And of course, this metaphor is the one that's picked up as a title for Jesus in Revelation five five that he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. In Genesis 49.10, we see that this is the tribe that will be uh, the, the ruling tribe. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. From the very beginning, we see that God intended for Israel to have a human king. And when you get into Deuteronomy, there are uh, laws related to the king, that the king was responsible to take a copy of the law and handwrite his own copy of the law in front of the uh, priests. And this was part of his uh, his training to make sure that the um, to make sure that the king would read the law. So in Genesis forty nine ten, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a law lawgiver from bef- between his feet until Shiloh comes. Now there's some debate over just exactly what this particular phrase means until Shiloh comes. Some of you have read um, Arnold Fruchtenbaum's book on Footsteps of the Messiah and listen to some of his other tapes. He takes a rather unusual position I ran across a few years ago where he argues on the basis of a passage in Ezekiel 21:27 that Shiloh isn't a name for God, I mean, a title for the Lord Jesus Christ, rather, that, sh- that it, it really should be read uh, differently. And he goes to Ezekiel 21:27, which reads, Overthrown, overthrown, I will make it overthrown. It shall be no longer until he comes whose right it is. And there is a parallel there, similarity between the word, the Hebrew there, and the Hebrew word for Shiloh. The trouble is, you have to change one letter in the consonantal text uh, to make that work. And so I just don't see that that is a, uh, a, a, I can't support that particular uh, interpretation. Uh, Shiloh is supported as a name of the Messiah in, this, in the uh, uh, Talmud. In Sanhedrin 98b, it mentions Shiloh as one of the many names of the Messiah. 
and the most ancient Jewish commentary on the book of Genesis, uh, Bereshit Ravah 99, uh, is also, also takes the name Shiloh or the term Shiloh here to be a, a title for, uh, for the Messiah. It could be a derivative of the word, uh, Shalom, the SH and the L, uh, would being retained there, which is the Hebrew word for peace. And of course, the Prince of Peace is one of the titles for the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, as well as in Micah 5, 5. The last, uh, metaphor here in Genesis 49, 11, suggests two different things. One, one thing that's suggested here is uh, prosperity and health, which in verse 12. But verse 11 is a, a picture that is, the, the, the language here is so reminiscent of what happens with the Messiah. It's very messianic. We have this phrase, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. And that is reminiscent of the fact that the Messiah enters into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. And it's not an exact parallel, but the language is, is very reminiscent. The idea of binding your donkey to the vine, which would not be the normal thing to do unless everything's just overrun with grapevines, is an indication of prosperity. But then you have this other phrase, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. And this seems to pick up the same imagery that you have in Isaiah 63.3, which is a picture of the violence and the bloodshed that occurs when Jesus Christ returns at the second coming and destroys his enemies down in Edom and rescues the Jews who have fled into the, into the wilderness. We've studied that in the past down near Petra in the area the Bible refers to as Basra. And then the Lord leads them as an army against the Antichrist up to Jerusalem. And Isaiah 63.3 says, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger, trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. And this is also the imagery picked up in Revelation 19.3, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns on a white horse, it says he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. I mean, that's just not a little dip. I mean, this is a picture of him coming. His garments are dripping with blood because he has slain and destroyed his enemies. So when we look at this prophecy in Genesis 49, 11, and 12, it seems to me that this is an allusion to the role of the Messiah as he comes to establish his kingdom. Uh, verse 10 talks about the scepter will not depart from him, and then this is talking about uh, an allusion to his uh, victory and uh, conquering the uh, enemies uh, of the kingdom. The last verse, verse 12, his eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk are, is a metaphor for, uh, for health and prosperity again. So this gives us an idea of the future for uh, for Judah. Now, that takes us to the next one, Zebulun. Zebulun is the 
actually the sixth son of Jacob and Leah. They had the, when the first four were born in rapid succession, Reuben, uh, Simeon, Levi, Judah, and then it was as if there were, was no more that Leah was barren. But the suggestion is from a couple of passages in Genesis chapter 30 that it wasn't the, uh, that Leah's infertility was a result of Jacob not having relations with her because he was spending his time with the handmaidens and uh, primarily with Rachel. Genesis 30, verse 14, we read of this rather bizarre episode. Now, Reuben uh, went in the days of wheat harvest. So some time has gone by, and Reuben has grown, uh, probably eight or nine years of age by this time, or could be even a young teenager. Reuben went in the days of wheat harvest, found mandrakes in the field. Now, mandrakes were thought to have been an aphrodisiac, and he brought them to or an early form of fertility drug brought them to his mother Leah, and Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she, that is Leah, said, it's a small matter that you've taken away my husband. Bedroom politics again. Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? And Rachel said, therefore, okay, I'll make a deal with you. You can have Jacob for the night if I can have the mandrakes. So Jake, that evening when Jacob came out in the field, Leah went out to meet him and said, Well, you're supposed to sleep with me tonight, for I have hired you with my son's mandrake. So he lay with her that night, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. The fifth son was um, Issachar, and then the sixth son after that was Zebulun, and instead of taking them in order, we uh, Jacob goes to Zebulun first, and then he will talk about Issachar. So Zebulun is a is the sixth son, and uh, in verse twenty of Genesis thirty, when he is born, Leah said, "God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will dwell with him because I have borne him." Six sons. So the name Zebulun has to do with a place of a staying, a place of haven, a place of rest. And she's thinking that, well, I, I've, born, I've given Jacob six sons. Uh, nobody else has done that good, so he's going to stay with me. She just obviously had a tremendous uh, love for Jacob, but she it was unrequited, and Jacob gave his all of his attention uh, to Rachel. If you look at the text of the Hebrew, it says, God has given me, and there's a play on words here. The word that is translated given me is Zebedani, a good gift, Zebed. So this has to do with a, uh, the play on words for the word forgiving. Now my husband will dwell with me, Yezbelani. See, there's a similarity between the, uh, the D and L shifts between the two words. And this is just another way in which the Holy Spirit's emphasizing what's going on here through some uh, through a pun in the in the Hebrew. So my husband will dwell with me, Yezbelani, uh, Zebulon. What sounds like that? So in the popular etymology, this is where he gets his name. He is uh, known as a place of haven. As the text goes on in the uh, prophecy in Genesis chapter. 
uh, 49, he will dwell between the seas. And so Zebulun's allotment is right up here in this air, light blue area between the Mediterranean and the Sea of Galilee. This is in the area later known as uh, the area of Galilee. Nazareth is in the tribal allotment of, of Zebulun. Now, if we look at Genesis 49:13 again, Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the seas. This is the idea of Zebulun. As history went on, Zebulun's territory expanded uh, until he did, in fact, uh, have land that was along the Mediterranean. Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the seas. He shall be a haven for ships and his border shall adjoin uh, Sidon. Uh, this is reflected also in Moses' blessing on the tribes in Deuteronomy 33, where he says, For they, Zebulun, shall suck the abundance of the seas and treasures hidden in the sand. So that picks up the same theme, that there would be prosperity for Zebulun as a result of, of trade. The location of the tribe of Zebulun is also takes in the Esdralon Valley. Now, the Esdralon Valley, let me back up a minute. The Esdralon Valley runs up here is modern Haifa, and the Esdralon Valley runs from here southeast down toward the Jordan River. See, here's Jezreel, over here's Megiddo, these border, over here's Mount Tabor and Mount uh uh, Mora, which figure in uh, later on in the battles with uh, uh, Deborah in, in uh, Judges chapter 5 and 6. This is also known as the Plain of Armageddon. And so Zebulun, it's, it's a trade route uh, that ran from Damascus up in uh, Aramea down across uh, north of the Sea of Galilee, and then down through the Valley of Esdralon and down along the uh, five cities of the plains to the Philistines. So Zebulun had a place astride the trade routes as well as close to the seas. So uh, Zebulun would be known for, uh, for trade. One of its, uh, one of the foremost commanders uh, foremost men mentioned in Numbers 1, 9, and 2, 7 was Eliab, the son of Hilon, and he represented Zebulun when, the, when Moses ordered a census of the tribe, it's, and he was also a commander of the troops. During the time of the judges, after the conquest, the most famous uh, man from the tribe of Zebulun was Elon, who judged Israel for 10 years in Judges chapter 12, uh, verses 11 and 12. I alluded to the fact that there was, when uh, uh, the Canaanites attacked, uh, Jabin, the king of Hatzor, attacked uh, from up in the north. Here's, uh, here's Hatzor up in uh, this area right here. You can see Hatzor north of the Dead Sea. I mean, excuse me, north of the Sea of Galilee. When Jabin of Hatzor attacked and dominated this area, uh, they had ch- iron chariots, and uh, his general was a, a wicked man by the name of Sisera. 
And there's this huge battle that's described by um, in Judges chapter chapter five with Deborah and General uh, Barak. Uh, this takes place in this particular area, and Zebulun, the tribe of Zebulun, is specifically uh, singled out for praise within in Judges chapter five uh, because of their response to the uh, call to battle and because of the way they conducted themselves in the battle. Well, later on in Scripture, in 1 Chronicles 12:33, there is a mention of 32 and 33. Both Issachar and Zebulun are mentioned in terms of their military efforts. 1 Chronicles 12:33 says of Zebulun there were 50,000 who went out to battle. Now, since we're there, and I'm not going to come back to this slide, verse Chronicles 12:32, we have a mention of Issachar. Issachar is the next one we'll. Uh, come to in our uh, study of Genesis 49, uh, verses 14 and 15. But here in First Chronicles 12:32, it says of the sons of Issachar, of the sons of Issachar who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. And so there seems to be, and this is one of the very few references to Issachar in all of the uh, scripture and of the tribe, but that they were perceptive and understood what was happening in terms of the uh, military condition, the form, uh, invasion of foreigners in Israel, and they understood the times, and so they, they knew exactly what to do and how to uh, conduct themselves in that military operation. Well, we've already gotten to Issachar, so we might as well uh, see what Jacob says about Issachar in uh, Genesis 49, 14, and 15. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between two burdens. So the imagery here is an imagery of, of strength, an imagery of service. A donkey is a beast of burden who carries things. And so Issachar is pictured as, uh, as, the, uh, as a labor force. As the donkey has two, has a saddlebags across his back filled to capacity, uh, carrying, uh, those things. Uh, verse 15 says, he saw that rest was good, the rest in the land, and that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear a burden, and it became a band of slaves. So the, uh, point of this is that Issachar became, uh, a, a worker, was a hard worker, but eventually would end up becoming enslaved. This is a reference, of course, to what took place during the Assyrian invasion in 722. Little is known historically about the man Issachar. Uh, The rabbis invent a whole host of traditions about him. In Jewish tradition, they say that Issachar was a student of the Torah, and his younger brother Zebulun uh, was a merchant who supported his uh, older, his uh, older brother uh, Issachar in his studies. But there's no uh, scriptural foundation uh, for that whatsoever. The idea here is simply that of, of his land allotment, and so we see that his land is also uh, in that same area uh, right next to Zebulun up in uh, the Galilee. Now that brings us to 49.16 where we get into a discussion of Dan. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. There's some interesting things 
to say about Dan, but I don't want to do that tonight because I'm running out of gas with this cold, so I'm going to give everybody a break and we're going to go home early. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to see how your prophetic word always comes true, and how as the centuries go by, we see again and again that you always give evidence, many, many irrefutable proofs, many convincing proofs that your word is true. Father, just as you've always watched over Israel and will ultimately fulfill all your promises to her, you always fulfill your promises to us. And we pray that you would uh, strengthen us and encourage us in, in your word, remind us that your word is always true and faithful, and that you will always abide by it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.